0: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you? In In this day, when everybody in show business, which is technically what this is, finds an excuse to celebrate a milestone... It's a big one for us, Kieran,
1: because this is the show before Show 300. That's right. Yes, yes, yeah, 299. Yeah, which is probably about 297 (laughs) more than we ever thought we'd get through. Because I remember when we first met, and you looked at me, and you thought, and I could just see that look on your face. There. Why, why have I agreed to even talk to these people? Um, <laughs> football no. finance? There's nobody interested. In what, what? What is this? What is this lunacy? Uh, yeah. And we're still together.
0: Yeah, uh, Kieran, that look on my face has more to do with the fact you had a Brighton scarf on and you were drinking a pint of lime and soda. <laughs> uh, that, that's what that look was about. It's it's Questions Day, uh, Kieran, and we have some really fascinating questions today. But we also have uh, a, a news story that's been going on for quite some time. And it it was a big result for Leeds yesterday, a big win for Leeds yesterday, but a big defeat the day before.
1: Yes. um, This came from uh, CAS, the Arbitration Service, which operates across uh, uh, sport, Uh, and tries and and, and succeeds in uh, avoiding too much litigation, which can be very, very expensive. So they they do a a pretty good job. Um, And this relates to the signing or the non-signing or the potential signing of Jean-Kevin Augustin, who um, went on loan to Leeds in the season where they won the EFL championship. And... Um, there was a clause in his contract that um, at the end of the season, uh, if Leeds were promoted, Leeds had to pay, I think it's around about 21 million euro, mm. uh, to sign him. So there was an obligation. Um, and and we, when we sometimes see this, and I, and I know when, uh, um, when when Brighton had a player went on loan, Anthony Knockhart went on loan to Fulham. When they were in the championship, again, there was this obligation to buy by by the sounds of it, uh, should they be promoted. Um, it's it's fair to say, he, I wouldn't say he stank the place out, but he, he came pretty close to it. He, he played three times as a substitute, didn't make an impact. Um, and uh, Leeds were promoted, but the loan agreement by the looks of this expired on the 30th of june and if you remember that first year in which we had covid the season was extended because we had that sort of you know two or yeah. three month gap where yeah. when nobody was doing anything yeah you know, we we were uncertain about the, uh, the the extent of the danger of covid just how contagious it was and everything closed down and and then you know football started to come back to empty stadia and so on um so the, the argument put forward by Leeds was that given that the effectively the loan uh, expired at the 30th of June, on that date, Leeds had not been promoted, hmm. and therefore they were under no obligation to buy. Um, RB Leipzig said, well, on our side of things, we see it as, the, the agreement said, if at the end of the season. The, yeah. uh, he's gone up so so this was the argument and um cas has come down in favor of uh rb leipzig and they've said that leads have to pay the first installment so th- this has still got some some way to run um in, in a in a similar way to the to the tragic case of emiliano salah yeah um so um CS came down in favor of RB Leipzig. Leeds are going to appeal. Um I, I spoke to some of our legal friends, and they say it will probably go around, you know, if there was a if there was a hard clause in the contract, which said that the end of the season had to be by the 30th of June, then perhaps Leeds do have a case. But if it doesn't and also, what happened in the rest of football? We remember talking about this at the time, that um, the, the Football Association, the Premier League and the EFL, in fact, you know, practically the whole of UEFA, said, under normal circumstances, players' contracts expire on the 30th of June. But of course, when the season hadn't ended, that meant that there were still some players who were out of contract on the 30th of June. Who conceptually might have to go and play three or four games, mm. and this did create a bit of a kerfuffle. many clubs yeah the the, the the FA said um if you want to give a one out oh, sorry, oh, yeah oh, sorry, a one month extension uh feel free to do so um, um you know and and everybody wins from this you know the the, the club can still have the normal squad. Um, the player gets an extra month of pay, and so on. I think there were one or two players who were a bit awkward about this, but the vast majority said, "Yeah, we've got a month, a one-month extension." And given that that was potentially the norm, then that could only help RB Leipzig. And say, "Well, look, you know, effectively, the, the football authorities have said that the end of the season isn't on the thirtieth of June by allowing this as a result of." Uh, Covid, then there's something called force majeure, which comes into again. That's more legal side than certainly than my knowledge of finance. Um, I, I did I did teach law very very briefly, uh, with with zero knowledge of the subject apart from uh, having studied it for one module at university uh, back it back in 1980. Uh, so so my knowledge is a bit sketchy. But force majeure is is effectively is is this an act of God? Could could Leeds or RB Leipzig use this as part of their defence? So it looks like Leeds are certainly going to have to go and pay that first instalment. They are going to effectively try to override CIS by CAS by taking it to uh, another court, um, and, and we'll have to await developments. But um, I, I think it's fair to say they they will need an even better comeback than the one then that, that they had at Elland Road yesterday in order to overturn this.
0: Yeah. I think to most of us, force majeure is what insurance companies use to not pay out. Essentially, isn't it? A lot of <laughs> yes, it's, it's a difficult one, this, Kieran, because it does seem to an outsider that Leeds are trying to pull a fast one. But on the other hand, they're trying to pull a fast one against RB Leipzig, so I don't mind as much. To be <laughs> perfectly honest. Um, questions time. Before we ask these questions, Kieran, I'm just going to point out, um, and this is based on the conversation with a, a very nice chap who randomly approached me the other day to say that he listened to the pod. Uh, but he had questions every week that arose that he mm-hmm. felt he didn't, he didn't see that he could email them because we had such a long waiting list. We do have a long waiting list. We accept that. Um, and I know it's frustrating for some of you, even though we joke about it. We are trying to get around to all of them. But like if you do have a topical question, do email it in because the chances are we will look at. It. Because quite yes. often your, yeah. quite often your questions based on stories that we've just done or based on things that have happened, uh, lead us down a new avenue. So so f- please do send in topical questions and we will certainly try. We producer guy does look at every question because mm. every now and again, as I, as I say, you, it, it, it does throw a different light on a subject that we have discussed. So, uh, <laughs> we had so many tweets from Derby fans. With the, when you, when you send out the menu the night before, menu is not the right word, is it? <laughs> well, the, the list of contents that are going to be in the show, so many sad faces from Derby fans, <laughs> emojis. Um, the first question, Derby fans, is about you, but only in general. Hmm. And it comes from Steve Downing. And Steve Downing says, I read that Derby County owed around £30 million in tax when it went into administration. I'm not sure if anybody knows that is the actual figure but Steve says that's a number that's hard to put into context. What would the average annual tax bill
1: amount to in the championship? Right, Steve. Uh, First of all, thanks for the question. Um, The the total amount agreed uh, as part of the claim between the administrators and HMRC was £25 million. Um, And and there were all types. uh, and, And even when when Derby themselves tried to estimate it, and, and this this did cause my eyebrows to raise, they seemed to think it was higher than that. Uh, but but the, the the agreed sum was was twenty around about twenty five million pounds, of which a quarter, uh, just over six million, was ultimately paid to HMRC. Although I'm hearing some very strange stories around this, which which I can't go into sadly. Oh. Um, but I'll I'll tell you about it after the show. Um, so. Twenty-five million clearly is a lot of money. Um, if we take a look at the total amount that was owed um, in the accounts of all of the championship clubs, that came to one hundred and eleven million. And the average, the median, and that's uh, that's something to take us back to our GCSE maths. Uh, the median was in fact two point six. So you've got Derby, which had by far the biggest tax creditor at 25 million the median was 2.6 and to put that into context and, and I've got you know you owe know me on, on a Sunday morning near a spreadsheet I I'm, I'm, I'm as I'm as happy as can be if you put the the 14 smallest tax bills together of the 24 clubs in the championship they came to less than was run up by Mel Morris's Derby County oh well so it's it was well, it's not for me to say because I, 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 there's some very sensitive issues at present, which which I'd rather not go into. Oh, okay, that's that's. I'd be if I was a Derby fan, I'd be terrified now, Kieran. But I, no, 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 no. But this is all settled. Yeah, you know, there there is oh, nothing right, to worry right, about. Right. Going forwards, going forwards, absolutely no problem. And there there seem to be some very sensitive people at the club. Oh, I see. Oh, you've been getting angry tweets again, have you? Yeah, yeah, something yeah. like
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, back in the day, Kieran, I don't know if I've ever told people this publicly, but I used to be, uh, I used to work in well, so long ago it wasn't even called Human Resources, and it was called Personnel. Um, I never did get the hang of how many ends and how many L's were in it, even though I was a <laughs> fairly senior manager. But I, I, I did the uh, it's whatever the professional qualification was called, then Institute of Graduate Institute of Personnel Management, but the statistics module just. Why, why do you have three? Why do you have average, median, and mean? Why can't you? Why do you have three words for something in the middle? Does, doesn't? Oh, it's this means different things. Not really. I mean, technically, yeah, but not really. <laughs> Which is why I had to reset that module, <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, Anton Gallagher has a question about Scottish football and the economics thereof. Anton Gallagher says, in the SPFL in recent years. We have had to endure some clubs using artificial pitches like Kilmarnock, Hamilton and Livingston, which is a crime against football in my view. I think the word endure gave us a hint that he didn't like it. (laughs) Uh, Many of these clubs have enjoyed inordinately good home records while the actual quality of the games on these pitches has seriously deteriorated. I, I don't know who Anton supports, but I'm guessing he wrote this question on the way back from the way uh, defeat. Yes. <laughs> Other than generating a home advantage, a home advantage are artificial services particularly good for cutting costs? Now, if I may say, Kieran, I don't know what they're like for cutting costs, but in terms of making money, mm. they're very good. I, I guess that's one of the reasons why these clubs have done have not it, isn't it?
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. So so I spoke to um, somebody senior in Scottish football about this. Um, and the, the response was that, that artificial pitches have been allowed in the lower leagues in Scotland for many years, mm. as they are in the, you know, the lower leagues in English football. And um, as you rightly said, they're, they're, they're really good in terms of generating revenue. P- people can hire them out. Um they can also be used uh for training yeah. for the for the first team squad, which means yeah. that you become you become more familiar with the dimensions of your pitch and where you know you if you aim for stanchion x that's perfectly in line with the uh with the eighteen yard box and so on um and I know that some premier league clubs who who have the resources what they now have on their training facilities is that the, the pitches are identical in terms of both the grass which is used and the dimensions to, to that of the first team because they they want to effectively cause try to create some form of muscle memory when mm. players are doing shuttles, when they're aiming for passes and so on in terms of putting weight on the ball. So um, it, it is something which is uh, popular in the lower leagues. Um, And what happened in Scotland was that there was a merger uh, between the SPL, the the Scottish Premier League, and the Scottish Football League, Um, and that merger took place in 2013. And one of the changes which was voted upon at the time was that artificial pitches in the top division could then be used. Mm. Now, all clubs voted on that um, and therefore... Yeah, that that's where we are, and and the reason why the, why the vote took place w- was based on the the additional revenue being generated, and also it is a bit easier for the groundsman. Yeah, once once you've incurred that initial cost of installing the pitch, um, yeah, there, there are there are pretty minor cost savings um, that arise in it. But I, I know I remember when Oldham had their plastic pitch, oh, God, um, so. Yeah, QPR as well. And I'd arranged a match between Oldham fans and Brighton fans, which was going to take place at – we were kicking off at uh, half 12, and we were going to play uh, two 40-minute halves, and we would finish by two, and then the the players would come on to do their training. Um, And and it was absolutely great because there there was a crowd there. Um, And and I scored in the last minute at the Oldham end – Ran the full length of the pitch to the you know two or three hundred Brighton fans who'd wandered in by that stage, <laughs> um, and and gave it the full the full works, <laughs> and and then as I turned back, saw the referee had ruled me off offside. It's it's the fastest I've ever done a hundred yards in my life, but uh, but it it was it, it was horrible to play on. I've got to be yeah. honest, you know, and and certainly the the, the criticisms which I think were levelled uh, at the pitches in that time were uh, were quite appropriate. It's, I, I remember.
0: Years ago, the argument in Scotland for artificial pitches was that the weather in winter was more extreme up there than it than it was in most of the rest of the UK, and therefore more games were called off. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it's it's interesting that artificial pitches are allowed at the highest level in Scotland because here, Kieran, uh, they're banned once mm. you get to once you get to the EFL. Well, there's no artificial pitches, which is why clubs like Harrogate and Sutton. Had quite a delicate balancing act to do because I, I think it cost Sutton five hundred and fifty thousand pounds.
1: Yeah, to replace
0: yep. their pitch, which it, it generated more than that in income uh, every season. So it's it's strange for a lot of a lot of League Two clubs would still love to have that extra income that comes from having a a plastic pitch. So when when you've got a team that's in say National League South or North and are, are looking to do well. It's it's a difficult decision because there will be people saying, well, let's have an artificial pitch and we can make mm-hmm. £500,000 a year. But then they say, well, no, we, we want to get promoted and then we'll have to we'll not only lose that income, but it will cost us that to get rid of it.
1: Yep, yeah, it, it is uh, a genuine challenge. But by all accounts, the, the quality of the pitches has improved. If, if you talk to – and perhaps we ought to get a groundsman on the show one day to talk about the, the finances or you know, just how much it costs to run a pitch. But, um, you know, most modern pitches are a sort of a combination of real grass and some sort of plastic grass. Anyway, I think I think those, the, you know, and they are. We've only got to look at the uh, ITV four and the Big Match Revisited. Oh, god! Gotcha. To, to watch some of the things that that football was taking place on uh, back in the seventies. And of course, we we knew knew different. We just said, well, it's, it's, it's the same as we got down the park, yeah. and and it was. Yeah, apart from the dog poo, that was the big difference. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I, I think it would be a nice idea to get a
0: groundsman on, Kieran, but t- two reasons uh, pop into my head as to why it wouldn't be a good idea. First of all, it would have to be on a mobile phone because no groundsman I know is going to take the risk of going inside and leaving the pitch out of his view in case, <laughs> in case somebody inadvertently walks across the corner c- quadrant. Secondly, I, I, I've met a couple of groundsmen in my time, Kieran. It, it, it's not going to be laugh a minute, that interview.
1: No, they are chippy, aren't they?
0: They are. They're like, they're like bass players and sound engineers. They tend to be the surly ones in any 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 group. Uh, although I have to say, in my experience, no one is more surly than the BBC sound engineer. So <laughs> uh, perhaps we could get one of them to hold the
1: microphone. They can have a scowl off.
0: I've, I, I remember filming outside Fulham, while the... It was a really nice sound man, but he was German, and he 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 played up to every stereotype cliche about dour Germans. And the the cameraman was Australian, and I remember the German chap for the about hundredth time going, "The sound is not perfect." And the Australian cameraman eventually cracking, "We're under that flight path. He he's from Airport, mate. It's never going to be perfect. It's just, just you just stand there waiting for this." Cross continental standoff to, to end. Uh, John Vince has a question. Uh, uh, John Vince is a Palace fan, drinks in the corner of the course of his arms. John says, I recently listened to your very good interview with Keith Wyness, the former Aston Villa and Everton CEO from a few months back. Uh, the interview is a few months back, rather than him being the CEO a few months back, uh, <laughs> unless he's no longer the CEO, here, And I haven't checked. With all his experience, ideas, and knowledge, he suggested we needed a Premier League 2. Would this just kick the can down the road and produce another championship division with teams again throwing silly money to try to get into what would be Premier League 2 and then hopefully into Premier League 1? Could leagues going forward be structured to avoid this? And I I think, and we have mentioned it's episode 299. I think it was in episode 1 or 2 in which I said to you that I thought a Premier League 2 was inevitable within 10 years simply because of the amount of ex-Premier League clubs that were in Mm. Uh, the championship, and I believe you disagreed.
1: Well, I, I disagreed because who's going to vote for it? Because mm. it's, because unless you get at least 14 clubs in the Premier League voting for this arrangement, it's not going to take place. The clubs in the EFL championship are going to vote for it because it's in their interest. And we, you know, we, I think we established a uh early on is that everybody operates on on a self-interest basis you know when we when we talk about the demise of berry football club they were actually kicked out of the EFL on a vote of other clubs yep, and the reason yep. why the other clubs did that in league 2 cuz they thought well if berry kicked out it means that there's only one club going to be relegated to the national league this season instead of two that's just if we kick berry out that halves our chance of being kicked out of the League two. So so you know that that's why decisions are made in the way that they're made. Um would would your club or mine, who are you know, both you know quasi-established now in the Premier League, would they vote for something where perhaps we moved to a seventy-five-25 split of money between PL one and PL two? I suspect they wouldn't. Um would the would the likes of Manchester United and Liverpool vote for it? Well, if it means them having less money, they're not going to assure you. They would simply say no. That they they've, their argument, their argument still is, in fact, that they are the uh, they they are the victims in in the Premier League. In fact, they should have even more money. You know, on average, they have got three hundred million pounds more than the the other fourteen clubs, and they say that that's not enough, and that's why they had Super League project, big picture, and so on, which was to concentrate money in the hands of fewer and fewer clubs. Um, I think Keith's comments and John's comments, do they have some validity? Yes, they do, because it would reduce the incentive for clubs to overspend in PL2 because the cliff edge becomes much smaller, and and, and that's the issue that we need to address. What I think John has has also recognised is that would we be kicking the can down the road? Yes, we would, because... If we take a look at the distribution of money in the EFL at present, it's 80% goes to the championship and 12% to League One, 8% to League Two. So there's already a huge gap between the championship and League One. The creation of Premier League Two, which might result in, say, the average TV money going from, say, 7 million a year to 20 million a year, that means that. The gap between the championship and League One, or PL Two and League One, that would grow even further. And and you, and you look at League One, and you've got Portsmouth, Plymouth, Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday, um, Derby County. Yeah, you know, there's, there's there's huge clubs. Yeah, you know, one of the great things about football in in this country is is that that opportunity to to go both up and down the leagues. There would have to be a cut off date. Um, people would be fighting to be on the right side of the fence. Come mm-hmm. that cut off date, and uh, it, instead of having the yo-yo that we presently have between uh, the bottom of the Premier League and the top of the Championship, there is also a yo-yo. If you think about a club such as Rotherham, which is always yo-shuttling know, sh- between mm-hmm. League One and the Championship. Well, that would become um, the the new equivalent of of what we see quite too often, perhaps in in the Premier League.
0: Our next question comes from Sam Talbot. And Sam says, my question relates to the ludicrous bonuses that are in high-level players' contracts. Ludicrous to us, Sam, every day to them. Goals, assists, appearance fees, international caps the likes are all included on top of the wages these players earn. How does this work for the club's calculations of things like amortisation of the player and wage budget of the club in general? Do the clubs assume all those additional costs will be added to the wage bill every week?
1: Right. What what clubs do at the start of the season? And, and I think we had uh, with some of our friends from Norwich on the show uh, a few months ago saying mm. they they actually put out, they work out two budgets. You know, one on what's going, it's going to cost the club should they survive a season in the Premier League or get promoted from the championship. And one if the other takes place. Um and then they keep updating them sort of effectively in real time over the course of the season. So they do adjust the, the figures. Now, when it comes to um, appearance fees, international caps, and so on, um, if you go into the small print of a set of club accounts, and I suspect there's not too many people doing this because they've got personalities and lives, um, you. You, you will find out you, – so you are able to dig out some figures – So if we take a look at the accounts of Manchester City in their their 2021 accounts, remember, this is pre the recruitment of Haaland. Um, They said they've got something there called a contingent liability. Now, contingent liability is what the club might have to pay out in terms of these future bonuses, um, and they put them in. They put them in the small print of the accounts because they say, "Well, we don't know what's going to happen, and there's not, there's less than a fifty fifty chance of this potentially happening because the future is so uncertain, and so on." In in the accounts of Manchester City, this came to two hundred and twenty seven million pounds, which which is you know, effectively. You know, Twice the wage, the annual wage bill of Brighton. It's you know, it's it Palace's wage bill is higher than ours, but it's it's not not that far off twice. So so you start to dig out the numbers. Manchester United at 112, yeah, and and this will be either payments to previous clubs in terms of of earnouts. Uh, you know if if uh, if. Manchester United sign player X and he goes on to win the Ballon d'Or or Manchester United win the Champions League then you've got to pay you know, an extra so million and so on and yeah, you know, so the, the numbers can be um, quite astounding and it, but it does very much vary from club to club and also the strategy of the club so if we take a look at Chelsea under Abramovich Chelsea's approach was we just pay a flat fee. Yeah, you know, we, we we're not interested in in additional payments. So Chelsea's figure was only sixteen compared to two hundred and twenty seven at uh, at Manchester City. But that's that's more to do with Chelsea used to yeah you know, because they had Abramovich's money behind them. They used to go in and say we're prepared to pay you X. Normally that was pretty close to the asking price. Um, and and the other clubs would just say thanks very much. Um, but that they are normally accounted for in in real time. Um, And what the clubs are obliged to do under the rules is that if they've got any potential commitments at the end of the season, then we have this thing called uh, a contingent liability where you say, well, on top of what we've actually put through in the accounts, this could be paid at a future date. And if Manchester City have to pay that £227 million, the chances are they would have done the quadruple and Haaland will have won the, the Ballon d'Or uh, as well, um, which isn't beyond the realms of probability.
0: Ah, I like the sound of contingent liability, Kieran. I'm, that's what I'm going to use from now on. When people still sidle up to me occasionally in pubs in the mistaken belief that I know anything about the economics of football, and they say to me, what's going on at Club X? And I go, uh, amortisation. And they go, oh, right, great. From now on, I'm going to say contingent liability. <laughs> that sounds that that sounds properly official. Oh, he knows what he's talking about. Contingent oh. liability. Uh, speaking of knowing what you're talking about, Andrew Lee has our next question, um, and Andrew Lee says, "For mm. my sins, I'm an economics professor in Germany. I, I don't think you've necessarily been bad in a previous life, Andrew, to find yourself as an economics professor, or indeed in Germany." Uh, Andrew says, "I grew up in Bolton. Oh, well, you must have done something terrible <laughs> in a bad life, previous life." <laughs> Ah, that's a joke, by the way, everybody. I, I just, I'm actually having to explain that to people now, which is not good for a professional comedian, Kieran. <laughs> Andrew says, I grew up in Bolton, and with Oldham's demise sealed recently with the relegation to the National League, I was wondering why there's been such a cluster of financial woes in Greater Manchester, such as Oldham, Wigan, Bolton, Berry, and Rochdale, and with Macclesfield close by in Cheshire as well. Kieran, having lived in the Northwest for so long, do you think this is simply a coincidence, or do you have... A theory, I, I suppose my theory, Kieran, would be that the Northwest, West being the traditional home of football mm. way back when, there's just an enormous cluster of clubs in a relatively small area. Is
1: it, is it as simple as that or is it coincidence? It, it, it is. I mean, that, that's exactly what I've written down. Yeah, If we go back to the commencement of football, the professionalism of the game was in those northern industrial towns because – uh, was it under Victorian legislation that the pubs had to be closed on a Saturday between? I think it was one PM and six PM. Uh, in in the mills, people used to work five and a half days, so they they'd finish work at uh, at midday on on a Saturday, and then they'd have nothing to do because the pubs were closed. Um, and, and people saw this. You know, the, the the club owners saw. Well, if we if we have something for people to to occupy themselves, we can make some money um, out of out of people's pay packets. And, and and this is how that initial enthusiasm in in the northwest started. Well, um, so if I could just, the
0: important legislation was the one that led to the uh, six and a half days. It was three acts, industrial legislation acts that that meant that the mills you couldn't force people to work seven days a week, basically. Mm. So the mills and the factories were shutting uh, on a Saturday afternoon, which is why the three o'clock kickoff became so uh, set in stone because the, the mill owners of the North worked out, as they do, a way to, well, we can't make them work, so let's find a way of taking the money off them. So yes, they gave them football, basically. So, but yes, but at the, at the same time, you weren't allowed to drink on Saturday
1: afternoon either. Yep. Um, and, you know, I'm... Um- as somebody that lived in the Northwest for for 40 years, um it's it's not an area of of huge wealth. And therefore if we take a look at all these clubs on an individual basis, they if if you're from Rochdale or Bury, you are very proud of of that part of Greater Manchester mm-hmm. that you represent. Um, and It has a natural ceiling in terms of size as well, because you've got these these different boroughs of of the broader Greater Manchester area. Um, And that means that there's a natural ceiling in terms of the number of people attending the game. And also, if you were perhaps wealthier, you tend to gravitate towards one of the bigger clubs to support Mm. because from a... From a hospitality perspective, and so on, you'd it, it's it's more glamorous to host something at Old Trafford or the Etihad than than at gig lane or like I still call it Scotland and uh, yeah. and so on. So uh, th- 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 those clubs have always tended to uh, be be cautious in terms of the spending. They don't have, by definition, a large prawn sandwich munching uh, element within the fan base because they are very much working class towns and. Um, this meant that they they had to you know, mind the money. Um, I think that there's also been very, very unfortunate, because we talk about the clubs going bust, but if you take a look at each of those clubs, the owners at or the prospective owners at yeah, we had Steve Dale at at Berry. We had, was it Lemsigam at uh at Oldham, we've had the guy at Macclesfield who who used to never used to attend yeah. at Rochdale. We had people who were trying to hijack the club. Wigan was put into administration within three weeks of being taken over, in respect of a of a, of an acquisition of the club, which we cannot speak about as to the reasons behind it for legal reasons. So, I think a lot a lot of those clubs have been very very unfortunate, Um and. We, that that focus, to a certain extent, is now shifting to the Midlands because you know, we, we've sadly, in recent times, been having to speak far too much about Birmingham, West Bromwich, yeah. Albion, and Coventry. Yeah. So I I, th- I think it, it isn't necessarily to do with the region. It's to do with the fact that it th- those clubs were all based in the Northwest and all went through a series of owners who uh, we could talk for hours about, um, and then we'd have to probably redact most of it yeah. um for for uh to, to prevent a producer guy having a coronary i, I suppose
0: as well Kurt, i mean people it, it's quite difficult for people not from the northwest to work out where each of these towns boroughs fit in the conurbation if you like and i know uh bolton for example wouldn't thank you for saying they were part of manchester
1: for, no no, you know, well, they're not, no
0: they're not, absolutely. They're not they're, they, you know i mean but, but it's it's as i say it's quite difficult for some of us outsiders to get a in the same way, it's difficult to t- tell where Manchester stops and Salford begins for, for mm. people who don't live there. But uh, traditionally, people would say, "Well, they had to compete with Man United and Man City." But it, it's only really in the last fifteen years that they're having to compete with, with City, mm. because until before then, City had their moments, you know, in the sixties in and so But City were in League One when some of these clubs were, were, were above them, so. It, but now what you've got is a whole new generation of fans from towns like Bolton, Wigan, Oldham who are growing up looking at two Manchester Giants, uh, uh. Uh, you know, who are in the Champions League, who are bringing players like Harland in, who are playing wonderful football. So it's, it strikes me that it's it's not going to get easier for these clubs to co- to compete for numbers, is it? They they just have to find a way of accepting that three, four, five thousand more so for Bolton maybe, but that's that's as many, many as they're going to get. Or they they do what Tranmere used to do, and they start trying to find ways of playing on on a Friday night to get the, the City and United fans. who will probably quite happy to go along.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Rochdale used to do that because I, I, when I first went to Manchester University, which was what 1980, I used to go to Scotland on a, on a Friday night and watch the mm. Dale, um, and then watch United or City on on a Saturday because in in those days uh, it was they were they were two of the cheapest clubs to watch. Um, and you, you didn't need to buy tickets in advance and you just rock up to the Kipax or the Stretford End and, and go and enjoy a game of football. Ah, yeah, you didn't need two forms of ID to get a ticket. You, mm. didn't have
0: to, you didn't have to go on Wednesday to get a ticket for two Saturdays down the line. Uh, having said that, it was they were violent, aggressive times and the pitches, yes. were, terrib- <laughs> the pitches were terrible. Um, so let's not go back. Uh, Jimmy from Bath has a similar question. Uh, Jimmy from mm. Bath says, is, is there a financial reason why clubs in Somerset underperform in comparison with other areas of England. Historically, Yeovil are the only Somerset club to have ever played league football. And even with Taunton Town joining Bath City in the National League South next season, that makes just three Somerset clubs playing in non-league steps one and two. Neighbouring counties like Gloucestershire, Devon and Dorset seem to do much better in comparison. Um, If if you're going to talk about neighbouring counties, Kieran, if you could... Try to avoid uh, sleeping giant when we get to Devon. That would be lovely. <laughs> but again, it's a dis- it's a distinction that most of us. Yeah, I, I had to stop and think. Mm. What who the who the clubs in the Gloucestershire, Dorset, and Somerset were, uh, not associated as a hotbed of football. Possibly, I mean, rugby was the main sport down there for a long time. You imagine?
1: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I took uh, a look at uh the population so so bath has a population of 88,000 western supermare 76 Yeovil 45 now you know our friend Andy holt uh of accrington you know, i think accrington has a as uh, a population of around about 35,000 burnley itself has only about 75 to 80 and, mm-hmm. and look at the proud history of that club and and the the and also the, the the pretty cosmic football they're playing under Vincent coq company this season um so it it does seem a little bit a bit strange um i th- i think it's just a a, his, a historical thing that those clubs in the northwest to a certain extent had a head start mm. going back to the the question that we've just been talking about because they were set up in in the 19th century with a view to professionalism and that took time to travel south and by then a lot of the slots in the in the football pyramid were effectively picked up by the northern teams, um, and they they had that impetus behind them. Um, you, know, the, the, you know, cricket and rugby are popular sports in you know, in the southwest, but you know, we've still got Plymouth with with its amazing fan base. Although I think it could be argued that it's uh, you know it, it's probably a bigger city than, than than the the numbers we've just been talking about.
0: Oh yeah, it's a sizable city, and they 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 will they get thirty thousand a week if they're in the Premier League. More. Mm-hmm. To, 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 and can I just say, I'm so pleased uh, watching the South Shields game yesterday. First of all, South Shields' claret and light blue Stripe kit is a thi- thing of absolute beauty. It's just so, it's just brilliant to see Connor Wickham uh, playing regular football uh, at Forest Green. So, I've never seen a player more unlucky with injuries mm. than Connor Wickham. Well, he was. He would have been, without those injuries, he would have been, I think, 20 goals a season for Palace or whatever club inevitably bought him when he was doing it. So I'm really pleased to see him playing football again. It's uh, And hopefully he will have a long injury-free career for the rest of his, his life. Uh, this question comes from L, just L. Mm. Uh, and L says, with New York City FC recently reaching the CONCACAF Champions League semis and Man City being perennial UEFA Champions League favourites, it seems that eventually both will win their respective Champions Leagues. Would they be allowed to meet in the FIFA Club World Cup, given the conflict of interest
1: in sharing the same ownership group? I think this is a, a cracking question from yeah. Elle. Um, If we take a look at what's happened uh, under UEFA, uh, there was an issue. Um, and you know, we, we made reference to RB earlier in the show when talking about John Kevin Augustine. Augustine. Um that UEFA did an investigation and by all accounts, uh, I I think it's for one of the the RB clubs, the RB does not stand for Red Bull. Uh I think it just stands for Bull, if you believe that. (laughs) Um, But but that was the conclusion that UEFA came to. Now, I I don't think that can be the case in respect of of Manchester City and and New York City because they are both owned by the City Football Group. Um, At present the FIFA Club World Cup is not a competition which attracts a huge amount of attention. But it's certainly one of the areas that FIFA is very keen to grow because that will increase its revenues. And um, you and I, Kevin, we're both old enough to remember what can happen when there's perhaps shared interest. So we go back to the 1982 World Cup and West Germany versus Austria. Yeah. In oh yeah, yeah that was that was an absolute stinker. Shameful. Uh, and, and for those people too young to, to know. Um, uh, in terms of that match, if West Germany won the match 1-0 against Austria, who his, I think it's fair to say, historically close links to to, to what was West Germany at the time, yeah, both completely. clubs went through to the knockout phase of the World Cup. Germany scored, I think, in the first 10 minutes. Yep. And for the next 80 minutes, both, clubs, both teams just played tippy-tappy and, and made no effort whatsoever to go anywhere near the uh the opponent's goal so that so you know that that was pretty horrendous uh, i do feel duty obliged to say that as a brighton fan we still have a huge conspiracy theory um for the the last saturday of the 1977-78 season where if uh we, we had to win and southampton and spurs were playing each other and if they drew they were both promoted and they pay, played out this nil-nil draw at the Dell uh, where there wasn't a huge amount of effort to score by either side. I'll say no more than that. It's 1978, Kieran. Come on tell you, You're a football fan the same as I am, <laughs> uh, <Kevin. laughs> <laughs> If we can't have a grudge, what's, what's the point of following the game? I, 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 every
0: time Dermot Gallagher's on Sky explaining some VAR decision, I just shout it in. Even now, disallowing a goal in the FA Cup against Leeds United that touched the back of the net before coming back over the line, which, yeah, you're quite right. Um, Paul O'Byrne has our next question. Paul says, it's always surprised me that the lack of chief technology officers or CTOs at football clubs, given the increasing use of technology within football, training data, fan interactions, even shirt sponsors, why don't more
1: clubs have senior employees in technology positions? I think, I think this is a valid point that you've made, Paul, and, and I suspect this is the way that football clubs are going to move. Um, football clubs are innately conservative, though, um, and uh, given that the vast majority of them are losing money, to, to be able to get the chief executive to go to the club owner and say, look, we, we think that there's a potential good return on the investment if we, if we get a CTO to come in and oversee all of our digital activities – um, would make sense, but in the short term, um, the, the manager wants a left back um, who thinks who, because you know, our one's crap or he's got injured, and, and that becomes a more pressing issue. Trying to expand football clubs in non-football positions, unless it is uh, normally in in sort of the commercial department. Is a real challenge, and I think uh, some clubs, I think Manchester City are, are, are example of one. Some clubs are very progressive on this, but there is still this innate. I can tell that I can tell what a good footballer is, yeah, uh, just yeah. by looking at him, and I can do I can do a deal uh, with a commercial partner without really needing to look at it for, through a commercial lens, or sorry, through a technological lens. Um, football. It's is a wee bit behind the times, but I think it's it's slowly starting to realise that if it wants to expand its revenue streams, this this is this is an opportunity that, that uh, should be taken up.
0: Uh, we have three questions left, Kieran, and the first comes from Matt Greenwood, and Matt is pulling at a thread. I don't want to be pulled. When uh, you when you hear, <laughs> when you hear very what very the question, good. thank you, when thank you, brilliant, Kieran. Brilliant. And when our listeners hear what the question is about, they will realise how clever that was. Uh, Matt says, how come we don't see shirt sponsors on the back of football kits in England? I noticed that the Juve women's team have Allianz on the back of their shirts along with the typical front of shirt and sleeve sponsors. If there are no regulations banning this, then aren't clubs missing out on potential sponsorship income? Well, Matt, if you want our shirts to look like French team shirts, then well, you can't tell what the colours are because there's so many adverts on, then that's fine. But I don't. but It's a valid question, though, Kieran, because there's a lot of spare space on kits where you could put logos on. We've got We've got sleeves, you know, which 10 years ago probably wouldn't have been happening.
1: Yeah. And if we take a look at the best sleeve deals, you know, the likes of Chelsea and Manchester United are getting £20 million a year yeah. from those. Um, so I went on to the FA uh, sponsorship section of the FA handbook. Um, and it says on the front of your shirt, you can have up to 250 square centimetres in respect of a logo for a sponsor. Um and as far as the back of the shirt is concerned, from what I can make out, it is allowed. You can have up to a hundred square centimeters because clearly the player, the player number, has to take precedence. Um, it, it could be that that's something we will see going forwards. You know, you, you talk to people at both the Premier League and the EFL; they're always looking for new ways. Um, I think part of the issue could be that perhaps the the front of shirt sponsor they are paying a premium for people to see their logo and they might turn around and say, well if you've got sp- sponsors on front and back, um, then we're gonna reduce what we're prepared to pay. So you could end up, you know, getting an extra five million you know, five million pounds from a back of shirt sponsor, but your front of shirt sponsor says, well, we're gonna reduce what we're prepared to pay by more than five million. So I'm sure it's something which is being looked at. Um, it does appear to be quite universal across UEFA. I don't I don't recall in any UEFA competition, seeing back of shirt sponsors. Although I, I must confess, I don't watch that many uh, UEFA, UEFA competition matches myself. But I don't recall seeing any, um, and therefore it might be one of those areas which needs to be addressed across the whole of Europe, um, and then then a collective decision is being made. But I'm I'm with you. You know, um, I, I quite like watching Forest. This season, yeah, yeah, because they don't have one, yeah. and and it and it and initially it jars, and then you think actually, you know, it, it's the shirt that you like, and not the not the logo. With with a few exceptions, yeah, you know, I, I still think Pirelli on the front of a Milan shirt is is gorgeous, but in in the main, I, I find them pretty reprehensible.
0: It, I think the problem with the back of the shirt, Kieran, as well, is that because you've got the player's name mm. above the number, and the number has to be a certain size, it's only really beneath the number yeah the, the, the logo could go, and with shirts tucked in, you're probably going to miss a lot of it anyway i, I people should be reminded back in the old days when shirt uh, front sponsorship first came in, Match of the day wouldn't show uh, mm. if you if you wanted to be on Match of the day, you had to wear a plain shirt, and that went on for quite for quite some time it's, and now we're at a situation when you say, when as you say you look at the forest shirt and you just think it feels weird. Just, mm. it, it, it seems like a Sunday team have turned up, and that's happened. That that culture change has happened in in, in two decades, basically. And, and like you say, you now get fans who are nostalgic for for logos. so like the Palace Virgin shirt. People love it. It's just, it's really strange. Um, we, and we, talking, we, we say come back, Nobbo at Brighton. well see how. Why, why did you get worried that guy would would be upset that I said touching wood? And now here you are shouting Nobbo all over. <laughs> Guys' eyebrows will be up and down like mine used to be in the first <laughs> two weeks of the series. Um, our next question, talking about this, comes from Dave. Just Dave. Dave has put no surname. We're about to find out why. Dave says uh, he lives. <laughs> uh, he lives in Crystal Palace, but he's a fan of Brentford. And he puts in brackets, sorry, Kevin. Uh, that's uh, very difficult to track down somebody just called Dave. In South yes. London. Yeah, Dave in South London, that's a rarity, isn't it? <laughs> um, uh, Dave says, surely it's just a matter of time before a big club, and with due respect to Macclesfield and even the likes of Derby, I mean an actual big club, I disagree with you about Derby, Dave, i have to say. Uh, surely so it's only a matter of time before a big club goes near to liquidation or actually into it. What effect in practice does Kieran think such an event would have on a general attitude towards sustainability in football, would it wake people up in a way that only a shock crisis sometimes can, to the parlousness and utter banjaxedness, great world of most of it <laughs> class finance, shock the Premier League or perhaps even this fated regulator into action or as it perhaps more likely not? So what effect does he think it should have? Interestingly, I remember talking to Alan Kerbishley when he was <laughs> manager of Charlton, uh, when Charlton were uh, an established Premier League side, so this is quite some time back, and I remember him saying, and bear in mind how much football finances have expanded since then, he thought that it would take a Premier League club going into liquidation to wake people up to the fact that football finance was was buggered. And he named two or three clubs that he thought were close to liquidation at the time. So it, it's interesting that even then he thought, Alan Kirby thought, that no one would do anything to put the genie back into the bottle until a big club went into
1: administration or liquidation. Seems unlikely that it's ever going to happen, Kim, doesn't it? Yeah. And also, I think the one thing that we've learned from football clubs going into administration and, and liquidation is that we've learned nothing. Yeah. Because it does yeah. happen time and time and time again. And the fact that, uh, you know, when we did the show last Thursday, it, it was literally a greatest hits of those clubs which had been in trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah, in terms of having a giant club go into this, what about Rangers? Yeah, and what happened to them? Yeah, and that point. was yeah, that yeah. was absolutely huge. Yeah, and yet football hasn't changed, and we see all of these other clubs getting into financial difficulties. Um, yeah, we we could have lost Chelsea six months ago. Uh, had, yeah. If if the government had taken a harsher line with regards to Roman Abramovich's wealth and and they'd effectively frozen all of his money, then there was a genuine chance that we would have lost Chelsea. Would we have, would we have learned anything? I, I, I suspect not, because the the culture of allowing clubs to run up huge debts, which are effectively um, guaranteed by the owner. Is, is something that happens all the time, um, and, and yeah, you know, hold my hands up. Yeah, you know, if it wasn't the Brighton's owner, we wouldn't be in the Premier League. You yeah, know, he, he's put four hundred yeah, yeah. million in, and and you know, people as far as, as far as I'm concerned, and all fans are concerned, the guy walks on water. Mm. So, um, but it it does increase financial risk. I honestly don't think that um, anything would be learnt. Portsmouth are the only club to go into administration whilst in the Premier League, and nothing happened then it was just you know yeah. people said oh dear what a shame it's, it's more than what a shame because you know, as as we established recently you know the local the local suppliers who who tend to offer more generous terms than they would under normal circumstances because it's a local football club they're the people that end up losing 75% or in some cases even more um i just i just think it's 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 uh, an industry which which is blinkered and financial common sense well, it's it's not the reason why you or I fell in love with the game, and it's and it's not the reason why people buy clubs either.
0: Yeah, the the problem is as well is that people find it's good. like if Chelsea, if that had happened, God forbid, and I'm no Chelsea fan, but you know I know many people who are Chelsea fans who love their club. If, if that had happened, people would say, well, that's a unique set of circumstances. That's that's not going to happen again because there, there was a an illegal invasion of the Ukraine and the, the, they had a Russian owner. Portsmouth, when that happened, people, there's a lot of nose tapping, and, and you know, they, well, you know, look at the people who own the club. So that's not going to happen again. There's always a reason why it's not going to happen again until it does happen again, mm. essentially, isn't it? Um, yep. Our final question comes from David Gorton. And David Gorton says, Living in Australia, you guys are a lifeline every week with your intuitive and distinctly amusing podcast. Thank you. I, th- I thought it was supposed to be serious. Oh, yeah, oh, crikey, yeah, we, we are We are We get things answered eventually. We just, yeah, yeah, we just take the, we take the scenic route, that's all. <laughs> yes. um, David's question is, and, and you know after that lovely introduction to us, I'm going to say, David, this is the best question we've had in 299 shows. Um, my question is, with Brentford demonstrating a particularly successful transfer policy using the moneyball approach? Is there any reason that Manchester United couldn't follow? A similar approach. Given the Glazers want to take out profit at every opportunity, would this approach suit a
1: club with a bigger transfer budget? Um there there are clubs that take exactly that approach. Uh I think Liverpool have historically done that. Yeah. They've they've used uh they've used the markets to identify players at a younger stage. Certainly if you take a look at the the spending by FSG who do come from a money ball environment uh, in respect of Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool have spent around about half a billion pounds less than Manchester United, Manchester City and Chelsea over the course of the, the, the post Sir Alex Ferguson era in terms of player investment. And I think they they probably I think it's fair to say the the second most successful team during that era mm-hmm. after Manchester City themselves. Manchester City certainly take a money ball approach. Um you know, I am I I don't like mentioning my club so often, but this is this is what Brighton do. You know we 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 signed Caicedo for, for 4 million in January. We could with if he goes in the, in the jan, next January window, it's be 80 I million. Mean, Did so we signed a player you know it, we signed him at 1920. I I think it It's a case of spotting talent from different parts of the world using data. Um, And Brentford have done this superbly. Um, As much as I hate to say it, Kevin, I I think Palace are probably good at it as well. Mm. You you, you have been targeting younger players with a view to add on profits because you're getting them at a young age.
0: Well, that's a recent development because for the previous decade, our transfer policy was to buy 29-year-olds and put them on long contracts. Uh, with no set on value, it's interesting. You, you talk about using the data in a moneyball approach, and yet earlier on, with Paul O'Burn's question, there is still a reluctance to use data elsewhere. But you know, it, it's strange when clubs see that data working in terms of a transfer oh. policy. Also, I think it's going to be very interesting. It, there can't be many. Well, I can't remember any transfer windows, uh, January transfer windows that Liverpool have got into as a mid-table team, as they inevitably will do. Looking at the numbers they've got at the moment so it's going to be really interesting to see if Liverpool do uh, what the rest of us do and, and half panic and splash out on players that they might not necessarily have done if they were top or second in the table wouldn't it? Yeah absolutely Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've known you long enough Kieran it's take, it, it took me about nine episodes to realise that's how you shut our conversation down <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely that's kieran's that's uh, yeah fine yeah good good point well made I, i'm just rubbish on football
1: as <laughs> we both established <laughs> so now I it getting slightly twitchy
0: you're not do you know more about football than most people i know um uh thanks to everyone who's donated to the pod via our patreon page it's very kind of you uh, and if you would also like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. There are still a few tickets left for the next live show at Plymouth Argyle's Home Park on Tuesday the 13th of December. You can go to Plymouth Argyle's website for those. If you have a question you'd like answers on the show, email us at questions at And as I said, topical questions are welcome. We'll be back on Thursday with a news pod. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire
1: for his customary farewell. Well, as always, folks, thanks very much for the feedback. Uh, and also, uh, you know, I don't want to mention Derby more than I have to, but uh, you know, some some really nice things that people said uh, that we, we, we do try to give uh, you know, an honest appraisal of all things. Mm. Um, Patreon is one way of supporting the show. Uh, it would also be great to uh, – we're getting really excited at the prospect of going to Plymouth next month as well. Um, and – If you want to support the show in another way, you can do that by going onto your podcast app and um, giving us a review, giving us five stars. It helps us in the charts. It helps us with algorithms and averages and God knows what else. Um, And it doesn't matter what you say. Apparently, it's all to do with the stars. And you could say you would rather have the show presented by Champion the Wonder Horse and Jamie (laughs) O'Hara, and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to us. Champions doing the heavy lifting on that pod, isn't he? <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of My son for football.